Uh, good morning. Go ahead and take a seat. Good to see you, Shore Church. My name is Josh. I'm on staff here. And um, yeah, if you've been with us for the last couple months, what, two and a half months now, we've been working through a series on the spiritual gifts. And we've walked through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and then last week we crossed over into chapter 14. Now, the foundation scripture for this whole series, I think, has been 1 Corinthians 12, 7, which says that um, God has given to each a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the good of the church, right? Meaning that to each redeemed individual who God has purchased with the life of his son, he's given gifts. He's given post-conversion gifts. So I don't have the spiritual gift of being tall or loud. That's something I was naturally given. There's supernatural gifts that are given post-conversion for each and every member, every single person who he's purchased for the common good. That's awesome. It's awesome. The analogy I used last week was that the gifts of the Spirit are the vehicles that God has given us for building up and building out his church. They're the vehicles that we drive to accomplish the purpose of building up and building out the church. And then chapter 13, Paul did a deep dive into the topic of love, um, showing us love is the fuel for these vehicles. It's what drives them. It's why we get into the vehicles in the first place. So love is the fuel. Now as we cross into chapter 14, um, this is a chapter, really the whole thing, devoted to establishing order within the church. What it's doing is it's providing some driving instructions for these vehicles. There's some lines on the road, so to speak, that these vehicles are to drive within. And so last week we took a look at tongues. This morning we're going to begin continuing on talking about the topic of prophecy. And um, I'm going to acknowledge again, I know there's a variety of convictions in this room around this topic. People have different comfort levels with this. Some people have had some really bad experiences. Some of you have had good experiences and you've been built up by this. I want to encourage us all, please do not form your theology around good or bad experiences. Experiences, feelings, hunches, they're just that. They can't be our de facto guides. This is what needs to be our guide. The word of God. The word of God. So I want to invite you, not open your minds. Again, just open your Bibles. We're going to get into it in just a second. But first, um, let me know. I'll let you know where we're going to be headed this morning. We're going to take a look at three things three um, different questions that I want to answer in order to help us understand how prophecy continues in the church age today. So the first question I want to ask is, how did prophecy function in the Old Testament? Secondly, how does prophecy function in the New Testament? How do we see it functioning in, um, in, in the last 27 books of the Bible? And thirdly, then, how should it function in the church age today? Go ahead, open your Bibles, and let me open us in a word of prayer. Well, Father God, I thank you just um, for a chance to gather and worship, um, ponder your many great and powerful attributes, your love towards us, your sacrificialness in giving your son, giving your very self in order to reconcile us, to restore all that we brought in, that division, that separation, gifting us that which we've never deserved. And so we just... We freely worship you because you're great, you're good, you're kind towards us, you're merciful. Your mercies are more. Thank you for this body. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who's not far off and distant, but near and you communicate. And I pray, Holy Spirit, this role that you've given me this morning of just unpacking some, some of the word, um, would you empower me for that? I can't do this apart from you. So I just ask for your spirit's presence, infilling and empowering, and I pray boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Read with me um, first five verses again of chapter 14. As I said last week, we're kind of, we're going to be overlapping with a lot of the text we were in last week, but you saw as in, in last week's text that prophecy kept coming up, and so we're just going to really examine that. Um, read with me the first five verses again of chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, 
but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. He opens by saying, pursue love. Make this your highest goal. You need this. If you have the gifts without it, it's useless. This is the fuel that drives them. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. But why prophecy? Why pursue prophecy more than any other one? That's a good question. We need to ask that. Why is prophecy the one that we need to seek most? As I said last week, tongues go up to God as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy comes down from God as enabled by the Holy Spirit. So tongues go up as enabled by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy comes down. It's a revelation from God. Or as verse 3 in chapter 14 says, that tongues build up the speaker, but prophecy builds up the church. It's words from God that have come down for the purpose of building up the church. Why? Because it's a very, very effective tool at doing that. That's why we're to seek that. What better word to build up the church than God's word itself? Makes sense. But what is prophecy? Now, depending on what background you come from, a, a variety of different things probably come to mind when you hear the word prophecy. Maybe it's the matrix. My wife and I just rewatched the series this last while. So good. Still so good. Um, but it's probably more along the lines of predicting the future, something like that. Why? It's because as mankind, we're quite obsessed with predicting the future. Uh, that's why you can pick up a copy of Nostradamus's work in the grocery store lineup. That's why uh, psychics can afford the, the exorbitant price of commercial real estate in Vancouver and still have storefronts. That's why throughout the ages, bones have been rolled, rituals have been performed, palms have been read, sacrifices made, tarot cards dealt, tea leaves interpreted, and then magic eight balls shaken. Remember them? Um, if we stop and think about this, though, how is it even possible to predict the future? How could we possibly predict the future if we're completely... Sovereign creatures, meaning that we're completely free in our wills, completely in charge of our own future, how could the future be known? There'd be too many other human wills that could intervene and mess it up for us. If we're just naturalistic coincidence, additionally, we, we also wouldn't be able to know the future because our very existence would be accidental. Our future couldn't have a purpose. The only way we'd be able to, we, we are able to predict the future is because someone exists over and above and outside of time. The only way we could potentially predict what's ahead in our story is if there's a master story writer who's already finished the book, who, as Ephesians 1.11 says, is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. This should, this should cause us to pause just a little and... and, and awe, have some awe at the attributes of God. Among places people go to, to search for wisdom outside of themselves, the prophecy that we see recorded in the Bible is categorically unique. It's not based on astrological occurrences or predicted astrological future occurrences like Nostradamus did. It's not seeking advice from a spirit. Biblical prophecy is in a class of its own because it's information that's been given to us by the story writer. It hasn't been coerced. God hasn't, it hasn't been manipulated or, 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 or discerned by us. It's something that God has freely delivered to us. The God of the Bible is able to definitively speak about the future because the God of the Bible is the one who's written it. So I said that in order to understand how prophecy functions today, we need to understand how it functions in the Old Testament. So I want to begin there. Um, our first point is, how did prophecy function 
in the Old Testament. The Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, that's a real book, it lists 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament alone, over 1,000 times that the story writer inserted himself into the story in order to provide hope, in order to deliver some sort of message from himself to the characters, to the people within his story. And these prophecies actually prove that he is the God of the universe because they go on to play out in unbelievable accuracy. There's a people that dedicate their whole lives to just tracking these prophecies through the scriptures. It's super fascinating stuff. Um, for example, there's some 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Um, these were written no sooner than 450 years before Jesus existed. And um, yet we see them being fulfilled in unbelievable detail in the person of Christ. Now, mathematicians have tried to figure out the probability of this. University of Southern California at Berkeley did a really neat study. You can go check it out. They, they calculated that the probability of just eight of these prophecies, eight of the 300 plus coming true in the lifetime of one person was one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's one in 10, 17 zeros behind it. The probability of 48 of these prophecies, so 48 of the 300 coming to pass in one person's lifetime was one in 10 to the 157th power. So one in 10 with 157 zeros behind it. But the chances of 300 plus prophecies coming true in the person of Christ, it's not just inconceivable, it's completely incalculable. It's it's astronomical. The fact that God has spoken through these prophets is evidenced by the fact that by what they said has come true. And it speaks to the nature of God. He's the great story writer. He's all-powerful. So nothing's going to thwart his purposes. He's all-knowing. So what he says is true. You can count on it. You can take that to the bank, as they say. And this should cause us to just pause and worship. Think on a character like that. Think on a God with attributes such as that. It's baffling. There's 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament, as I said, but they fall into four categories. And if we want to understand the nature of prophecy now, I think it's important that we go back and we understand what sort of categories they fell into. The first category I want to look at is that of messianic prophecy. Um, really, what that means is prophecies about the coming Messiah. Messiah, just a fancy word for Savior. So the first two chapters, three chapters of the Bible, you don't have to read very far before you come across a messianic prophecy. If you've read the Bible and you started at the beginning, you saw God created a good world, sin entered it, mankind rebelled, um, division ensued, separation ensued. God came down, found the serpent, that deceiver, and he went up to him in Genesis 3, and he said, I will put enmity, meaning I'm going to put contention between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours, and he will crush, or he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. What this is known as is the proto-evangelion in theologically nerdy circles. Two different Greek words, proto meaning first, evangelion meaning good news. The first insertion of good news into the story. And it's this messianic prophecy that sets the stage for the whole story arc of the Bible. It's this Messiah coming who's one day going to reconcile all things to himself. Messianic prophecy, that's one category. The second category is that of eschatological Prophecy. If that's a new word for you, that's just a 50 cent term that means things that pertain to the end or in reference to the end of time or prophecies about what's going to come at the end. So it's God telling us what will happen at the end of the narrative that he's written. It covers things like the end of the world, um, the, the second coming of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, the final judgments, and so forth. These end times predictions. In the Old Testament, um, books like Daniel, they're largely eschatological. There's a number of different places you see eschatological prophecies made in the Old Testament, but they, they're in the New Testament as well. 
Jesus made them, and, and, and John, John made some in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. I want to um, read just one verse from you from Revelation. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. What is this? Eschatological prophecy. Jesus predicting something that's going to come at the end. The third category that we see in the Old Testament, though, is that of corporate prophecy. Corporate prophecy was, um, prophecy, pardon me, was literally God speaking to the national whole, to the whole nation of Israel, for the corporate good of the whole of Israel. So think Exodus 6. God comes down, communicates with Moses. He says, I'm going to do something incredible for the whole nation of Israel. I'm going to come deliver you from Egypt. I'm going to take you out, take you to the promised land. I've got a land that I've prepared for you. Corporate promise. Promise for the, the whole nation of Israel. God foretelling what he's going to do. What the story he was writing had ahead for them. But then there's a, there's a fourth category. So beyond corporate prophecy, which was God often just correcting, warning, and reminding people about his words as a corporate whole, pleading with them, calling with them to return. Beyond that, that corporate prophecy, there was also individual prophecy. God telling individuals what he was going to do with them and through them, for them, revealing steps that were ahead, what part they would play, and how to proceed as faithful individuals within God's large meta-narrative. So an example. Think of, um, there's many, there's many we could go to, and I don't want to get bogged down here because I really want to continue on, but um, in Genesis 15, God appears to Abraham and, and promises him, hey, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to make you a great nation. This was an individual prophecy that God gave to Abraham. These four categories, messianic, eschatological, corporate, and individual, are the four categories of prophecy that we encounter in the Old Testament. And they were spoken by an individual who, who was referred to by the title of prophet. So a prophet was someone who spoke these things on behalf of God. The role and office of the prophet in the Old Testament was to do just that, speak on behalf of God. In fact, what we've recorded in the Old Testament is largely written down and, and communicated by prophets. The, the prophets were the, the writers of the Old Testament scriptures. And it wasn't something to be taken lightly. I've got up on the screen Deuteronomy 18, verse 19 and 20. It says this, I will, this is God speaking, I will personally deal with anyone who doesn't listen to the message that the prophet proclaims on my behalf. But any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name or who speaks in the name of another God must die. Not many people lining up for the job of prophet. You don't want to mess that one up, right? To be a prophet was a role that wasn't taken lightly and should not be taken lightly. It had responsibility. To falsely speak meant to die. Simple as that. Likewise, God's words were to be taken seriously by the people who heard them. That's a little bit of how prophecy functioned in the Old Testament. I want to I jump ahead now and take a look at how do we see prophecy functioning in the New Testament. Um, I, I mentioned the topic of prophecy in tongues um, that Paul's addressing are probably the most divisive topics inside of the church today. Um, denominations have formed around where they land on these topics, in particular where what to do with prophecy in an ongoing sense, what prophecy looks like in the New Testament and forward into the church age. I wanted to spend some time unpacking these four categories because it's going to help us understand how we should expect prophecy to function moving forward. The first category that we looked at in the Old Testament was that of messianic prophecy. This is a pretty easy one to deal with in the New Testament perspective because uh, this form of 
prophecy finds its fulfillment in the arrival of the Messiah. It makes sense. We don't, we don't see any Messianic prophecies made in the New Testament because what we see there is the Messiah. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3, this is up on the screen. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So this is the Old Testament period. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Powerful scripture. There's lots that we can glean from this scripture, but there's two things in particular that we need to make note of. Two things we should no longer expect. One, we shouldn't expect any more messianic prophecies. Because the Messiah himself has communicated to us. We don't need people to communicate about the Messiah because the Messiah himself has communicated. Makes sense. Second thing, we shouldn't expect any more prophets speaking scripture. Because Jesus came, he communicated to us himself. The office of prophet and the role of writing scripture has ceased. The New Testament proves this. It wasn't written by prophets. It was written by apostles. Apostles superseded the Old Testament office of prophet. And they know this. I want to put a couple scriptures up on the screen just so you believe me. I'm not pulling this out of anywhere. This is straight from the scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says this. We thank God constantly for this. This is Paul speaking. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. What's Paul saying? The apostles are the ones who've been charged with writing scripture in, in the New Testament age. 1 Thessalonians 4.8, a little further on, it's not up on the screen, but he, he also goes on to say this. He says, therefore, whoever disregards it, disregards not man, but God. What does that remind you of? Deuteronomy 18. It's the same wording. Because Jesus came, the category of messianic prophecy has ceased. And when Jesus commissioned the 12, the Old Testament office of prophet ceased. But the second category we looked at was that of eschatological prophecy, so prophecies pertaining to the end times. Um, as I mentioned, there is New Testament prophecies made about the end times, both by Christ and by John, one of Jesus' disciples. And uh, because the apostles replaced the prophets as the communicators of the scripture, it makes sense when John, who was the last living disciple of Jesus, says the following in the book of Revelation. It's up on the screen as well. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. So John, the last living apostle of Christ, finishes off the Bible writing this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That's Deuteronomy 18 again. And if anyone takes away the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. So should we expect any more words of scripture? No. Not according to John. Can any more scripture be written? No, there's no more apostles that are living. The canon of scripture is a closed book. We don't, there's no, nothing else to be added to it. Now, many acknowledge this, and, and therefore they conclude that since the prophets and apostles have ceased and all scripture writing has ceased, therefore we shouldn't expect to see prophecy anymore either. I agree partially. Let me clarify. I agree that we shouldn't expect scripture anymore. Any people who today claim to take up the office of prophet or apostle, anyone claims to be doing one of these things, we need to, some alarm bells need to be going off in our head. Joseph Smith, he claimed that a prophetic angel named Moroni showed up, gave him some new scriptures, and these coincidentally were Christological and eschatological prophecies, 
and he added them to the Book of, the Book of Mormon, to the Bible. We can 100% say that Joseph Smith and the prophetic angel Moroni are both false prophets. Modern-day pastors who, old, who claim to hold the office of prophet or apostle, capital A prophet, capital A apostle, and call themselves whatever it is, the apostle Bill, the prophet Chris, they need to be regarded as false prophets and false teachers unless they are just radically, radically misinformed. And we too need to be on guard for false prophets. Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. How many? Many. Matthew 7, 15 says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look just like sheep. Really hard to differentiate. They look just like a lot of other pastors. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. There's false teachers. There's false prophets. There's false apostles. We need to be on guard. We can't just accept everyone because they look like a sheep. That's why we need to know the word of God. This is why we can't let experience be our guide. We can't let it inform our theology. This needs to inform our theology, church. I agree with the cessationists that we need to be very careful with men who call themselves prophets. But I would argue that there's a difference between having the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy. And I would argue that there's a difference between having the office of apostle and the gift of apostleship. The apostolic gift, from what I can tell from Scripture, and I'm just a guy, it's essentially uh, the burden God's laid on some to, to, for pioneer evangelism, church planting, things like that. That burden that he puts in some hearts where people will just willingly walk into known martyrdom in order to advance the cause of Christ. The gift of apostleship. Small a, apostleship. The prophetic gift, from what I can tell from Scripture... It's building up and building out God's church by communicating divine revelation from God. It's not the office, it's a gift. You have that, it doesn't mean everything you say is just gold bars falling from your mouth, get your baskets, here I come. It means that from time to time, God speaks a divine word to you, and you get to communicate it, and that's a rad gift. Some will push back and say, well, but the scriptures have ceased. The messianic, the eschatological prophecies were completed in the first century. Yes, but there's still two categories of prophecy that we saw in the Old Testament. Corporate prophecy and individual prophecy, and it's these two categories of prophecy that I believe the church still radically needs today. I said earlier, corporate prophecy, this is up on the screen, in the Old Testament was God warning and correcting his people reminding them about his words and pleading with them and calling them to, to return. Other times speaking to them in order to, uh, to guide or to give them strategy. And I said earlier, um, individual prophecy in the Old Testament was God telling individuals what he was going to do with them, through them and for them. God revealing what steps were ahead, what part in the story they would play, and how to proceed faithfully as an individual member in God's bigger picture story. There is no need for these two forms of prophecy to cease. But there is a big need for it to continue, and I would contend that it does. Acts 11, uh, 27 to 30, it's up on the screen. We read this. Now in these days... This is the book of Acts, so this is the New Testament. Acts is um, Luke's telling of the events of the New Testament, how Christianity exploded from a group of, some say probably 30 guys in an upper room, to today billions of people. This is the beginning accounts of that. It says, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, in case you were wondering, which days did these take place in? Um, so the disciples determined 
everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What's happening here? Prophecy comes in order to help direct and guide the corporate church for their good. What did the church do? Responded, helped the church. God gave a divine word in order to help the church, the corporate church of large. Also notice, it's not spoken by one of the apostles. So it clearly, it can't be scripture. It's not inscripturated. It doesn't even include the exact words that he said. For the good of the church as a whole, it guided them, gave them strategy. Um, Agabus' words aren't included, which is, um, some would say all prophecy needs to be scripture, therefore, because the canon's closed, we shouldn't expect scripture today. But Agabus' words aren't included. Elsewhere in Acts, in Acts 21, Philip has four daughters who prophesy. None of their words are included in the scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's reference to many places where prophecy took place too that we don't see it recorded in scripture. So we can conclude not all prophecy is scripture. Eschatological and messianic prophecy, certainly. But it's clear that corporate prophecy here wasn't always included in the scripture. Um, Agabus also gives another prophecy in um, Acts 21 that falls into the category of individual prophecy. Um, It says this, while we were staying for many days, um, pardon me, I want to make sure I'm in the right place, yeah, Acts 21 verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So what is this? Prophecy made specifically for Paul. An individual prophecy. Now, some read this and think Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit because he actually went on. But notice the Holy Spirit didn't tell him to go. It told him what was going to happen, and then people made their own conclusions and told Paul not to go. So others will say that this prophecy, um, or their, because Agabus made this, and if you read on in verse tw- or chapter 21, it doesn't look like it came true in quite the same way. They'll conclude, well, New Testament prophecy is in a new category from Old Testament prophecy, and today um, prophecy is actually fallible. I can't get to either place, Um, but I do see in this verse three things that we need to take note of. One, Paul doesn't disobey. This was purely a warning. The Holy Spirit wasn't the one who told him to go. The people who interpreted the prophecy were. Secondly, if you read on in the book, Agabus' prophecy in chapter 28 does come true in exacting detail. Paul tells the story uh, at the end of Acts when he stood before the Roman authorities, and it matches up with Agabus' prophecy perfectly. Thirdly, I think the third thing we conclude is that while prophetic words are infallible, they're actually received from God, our interpretation and application of the revelation might be flawed. So there's three things. There's revelation, interpretation, application. What God speaks, because God's word can't return to him void, it won't, unless the character of God's changed. But I can't see anywhere in the New Testament that gives us a case for prophecy becoming some new form of thing where God's words can actually fall void. But what can be messed up is the interpretation and the application So what does this tell us? We need to be careful. If you prophesy, you need to be careful that you don't speak, that you don't add on, or you don't take away. And that's exactly exactly what John said at the end of Revelation. Be careful you don't add, and be careful you don't take away. There's a weight to prophecy. 
And I don't see it changing in the New Testament. So to wrap up, we've taken a look at what is prophecy in the Old Testament. And um, what I see in the New Testament scriptures is that while the prophet, the office of prophet, pardon me, has ceased, the gift of prophecy very much continues, specifically in the areas of corporate and individual prophecy. But how should we expect prophecy to function within the church today? The question on hand. One one major distinction and and primary way that um, prophecy works in the church today is that it's not primarily foretelling. It's not primarily foretelling or or predicting the future. It's what's referred to as forthtelling, unpacking the realities of what already is. So foretelling is the declaration of future events as revealed from the Lord. Forthtelling is interpreting the purposes of God and applying the truth of God's word. Remember prophets in the Old Testament showing up and calling people to back to obedience in the word that God had already spoken. Large portion of prophecy today functions in the very same way, to prophetically call people back to the word that God has already spoken, contained in the 66 books of the Bible. Forthtelling. Foretelling to declare the divine will, to interpret the purpose of God, and to make known in any way the truth of God so as to influence people. Many have recognized how the role of preaching matches this description and that its purpose is to essentially unpack the truths already contained in God's word. Some even conclude prophetic ministry today is preaching. I can see some of that. I can see some of that, specifically in the corporate context. How does does God's word for today get spread around the global church today? From ministries with very big pulpits that God's put in influential places and the pastor unpacking the word calls not only his church but also the wider church back to obedience in the word. (laughs) But prophecy also works on an individual basis. The thought of this, though, does freak some out and, and I get why because it's resulted in in some individuals marching to the beat of their own drum, free soloing the Christian life, sort of lone rangers, just them and God's voice, no need for Christian community, I can do my own thing because God speaks to me, that sort of attitude. But just back a page, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says that the same spirit that empowers the gift of prophecy empowers all the other gifts. So if someone's claiming to hear from God and it's contradicting the wisdom that he's placed in others, the discernment that he's placed in others, I doubt they're hearing from God because all of the gifts are dependent on one another. Um, Take a look, 1 Corinthians 14, um, verse 29. Once I find it, it says, let two or three prophets speak, but then let the others weigh what was said. Prophecy was never done in isolation of the grander community. It actually required it. Requires the gifts around them. None of the gifts, hear that, none of the gifts operate in isolation. That's why we need the whole body in order to function as the body of Christ. Because of this, my my experience has been that usually when God actually does give prophecies for individuals, he doesn't give it to the individuals themselves, he gives it to other people to give to the individuals. The gifts are not, again, Paul opened chapter 12 saying this, the gifts are not primarily for the upbuilding of individuals, but the corporate body. But there's a tendency with those, with this, prophetic gift to claim to hear something and then kind of say, well, it doesn't matter what anyone else says around me because God told me this. God told me, and so who are you to say? I had a pastor, um, I was 14 years old. He claimed he heard from God that his 15-year-old daughter was supposed to marry someone. And, And he got up and he said, thus saith the Lord, this man is supposed to marry my daughter. Ah, God told me. And then what do you do? 
You leverage that God told me argument. Didn't submit it to the wisdom of anyone else in the body. I think that this is a form of false prophecy. I don't think you need to heed prophecies like this. You should never do or not do something based off of an isolated prophetic word that you think you've heard or that someone's delivered to you. I want to say that again because it's actually really important. You should never do or not do something based off of an isolated prophetic word that you think you've heard or someone else has delivered to you. In fact, I would go so far as to say is if you actually receive a legitimate prophecy, it will be seconded, it will be confirmed by others. He'll validate it through other spirit-gifted individuals and also his word. Um, That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let others weigh what was said. We need that. If what you hear contradicts the counsel of other Christians or your elders, you've most likely not heard from God. My wife and I, um, about 11 years ago, we moved to Chile to do missions for a period. And before we left, kind of the leaders of our church gathered around us and prayed. And um, there were some encouraging words. We felt very much affirmed in our decision to go and do this by the counsel that we had in our lives. But one woman got up and gave a prophecy about how my wife was going to, I can't remember what she said, basically um, walk away and, and derail everything that happened in South America. It was like really out of the left field. You're like, wow, we've just had all of these great prophecies, and then you just gave this really weird one. Um, I can't remember it verbatim, <laughs> but it stuck out. It was, it was off on its own. It contradicted everything else I just heard. I think we need the counsel. I know we need the counsel of other people in order to determine and discern whether prophecies, prophecies are in fact from the Lord. First Thessalonians 5.21, it says, test everything and hold on to what's good. You worried about, about being too testy with what you think God has spoken to you? Hey, God's word tells you, test everything. Test everything. If you're not sure if he's spoken to you, ask him, hey, is this you? If this is you, I'm willing to do it, but I need a seconding. God can and will affirm from other sources. Um, several years ago, this, God gave me a word. It's just for myself. I'm keeping it in my back pocket. And I was weighing it in, uh, this was maybe, what, a year and a half, two, a year and a half, a year ago. Really started to chew me up, and I'm going, what, what are you doing with this, God? Something he convicted me of. And I just prayed, hey, if this is you, affirm it. And Dustin Williamson, you sent me a rando text. Um, could have ever known, unless you were, you're the one going through my trash. I thought it was the coons. But I get this text from Dustin um, that was alarmingly accurate. It, it, he wasn't interpreting or applying it to me. He said, I don't know what this means, but I feel God just gave me this for you. What uh, unpacked in my heart, like it was unbelievable. It affirmed, it answered my prayer in that moment. 99% of the time, prophetic words, they're going to validate something God's already spoken in you. They're not going to initiate per se something new. Um, I began praying, this was about eight years ago, right as I began to start to preach, God has put this burden on my heart, and I just began to pray, God, would you ignite your word in me in such a way that other people would be ignited with it? Something I still pray, but I just began like laboring in prayer, God, would you light me up? I used to pray and with this vision in my head of being a torch, like light me up and let me run around and light other people on fire in a good way. Um, <laughs> and I was at Mission Fest. I had a film in Mission Fest about seven years ago. And this woman, um, after, after the, the film played, I got up and kind of just stole the mic and started preaching. And this woman came up to me after and said, God just gave me a picture of you being lit up and spun around, lighting other people on fire. And I don't know what it means, but I felt I had to share it with you. I can't tell you how affirming that was to me in the time of my life where I was making a decision to go into full-time pastoral ministry. 
two years ago, actually a year and a half ago, I, MB Mission invited me out to a board meeting. And I was at MB Mission and um, I did a presentation on India and the gospel needs of Northern India. And this woman got up at the end and she just said, hey, I don't know what this means, but God gave me a vision of you being spun around on fire, igniting people for the nations. Is it coincidence? I don't know. But I can tell you in the moment, it answered prayers, things that were burdening my heart where I had been pleading and calling out to God for. Again, our experiences alone are, don't serve as a valid evidence that the, these forms of prophecy continue. But I see clearly in the scriptures that they have, and I've experienced it as well. The gifts of the Spirit, they're for building up the church. And corporate prophecy and individual prophecy, that's exactly what they do. But there's a third purpose that I actually think prophecies for that I see in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23 and 25, it's up on the screen. It says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who are uninstructed or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Yes. But if an unbeliever or an uninstructed person comes in while everyone's prophesying, he'll be convicted and called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be made clear, so he'll fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is truly among you. I believe God can yet provide prophecy, insight, wisdom into things that would be impossible to know that he would use to convince some that he's real, that he sent his son to die for them, and that their life is worth is about more than just living and dying. In Acts um, 9, Acts 9, verse 9 and 10, um, or sorry, 10, 10 on, we see um, Paul had just been blinded on, on the Damascus road and then um, the story continues on in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regret, regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell off from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He arose and was baptized, and taking food, he regained his strength. Evangelistic prophecy. Prophecy, a word of wisdom. Ananias could have never known what Paul was, had seen, what God had told him. God actually told him a guy named Ananias is coming. Couldn't have known any of this. Another story, it's just lots of these in the New Testament. John 4, remember Jesus goes to the woman at the well, tells her everything she'd ever done. She gets up just bewildered, runs into town, comes back. Her and many town folk, it says, get saved. The, whole, the same Holy Spirit that enabled all of this is available to us today. I don't see recorded in the scriptures any, any reason to believe that this type of thing has ceased. Much has ceased, but not this. I believe things like this can happen. There's been many times the Holy Spirit's spoken a word through someone else to me that's hit me like a ton of bricks. 
And I believe God wants to do that with those who are not yet part of the body either. The gifts are for building up and for building out his church. And I believe that what verse 25 says can happen. It says that the secrets of their hearts will be disclosed. They'll fall on their face worshiping and declaring that God's really among us. My prayer this week and over the teaching this morning is that it would have hopefully brought some clarity around these gifts. It's a lot to tackle in one sermon. Um, We're going to pick it up next week too and talk through some more things that are revealed in this text. But I pray this has brought some clarity. But more than that, my desire is that it would excite some of us to begin to pray for it as he opens chapter 14 by saying, earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. Earnestly desire this. Why? Because it, it's such a radical, radical way to build up and build out the church. While I believe um, Christological and eschatological prophecy have ceased, I believe that God longs to communicate with us individually and corporately. Individually to encourage and build up and, and guide us, but corporately to correct us, to reform us, to call us back, to warn us like he did many, many, many times throughout the scripture. And Romans 8.14 says, all who are sons of God will be led by the Spirit of God. All who are sons of God will be led by the Spirit of God. And though most of us believe in a self-revealing, communicative God, who we live as though he's done speaking. We don't expect him to speak. When we read the word, we don't expect him to speak. When we pray, we don't expect him to speak. But Romans 8.14 says, all that are sons of God will be led by him. We don't expect it. We don't seek it. But God continues to speak. Not in a way that would supersede the sufficiency of his word. Firm believer in the sufficiency of God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. But we need to pursue the voice of God because he's revealed to us in this that he continues to speak. We can do this through fasting. We can do this through silence and solitude. We do this primarily through reading the word. God's going to illuminate it. God's going to primarily speak to us through this. And then by God's grace, he'll affirm that through others in this body, through others with this gift as well. And so I want to urge us in closing, the man's going to come forward, to pursue the voice of God. He speaks And if you have this gift, I want to urge you to begin to pray that God would use it to build up and to build out the church. Pray that you would be used to communicate the love of God to those who don't yet know it. It's a radical gift, and I'm afraid that we may have been quenching it. While there's misuse of it, I'm afraid afraid of falling into the camp that would try to quench it. And I want everything that God has for us. I want to close us in a word of prayer and then I'll talk about how we'll respond. Father, I thank you that you are a God who communicates, who's given us the 66 books of the Bible, who spoke through prophets and apostles and who speaks to us today. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you come minister into our hearts through the word? As we worship, Holy Spirit, would your presence be here reminding us of words that you've spoken to us in the past that we've buried? Would you dig some of those up this morning? Would you validate those through words that you would give? We want all that you have for us, Holy Spirit, and I long to see this give active within your body. I pray for your presence now. In the name of Christ, amen.